So, uh, just to start off, I'm Suzanne, and I'm, I'm really aware that some of you, like Polly, have known me for a long, long time, um, and others have no idea who I am. <laughs> um, so I'm Suzanne, so I grew up in this church in my teenage years. I was here, and then I went away to university, came back and worked as a youth worker in Buckley and Ashburton for about five years, and then um, eight, eight and a half years ago, I went uh, to Guatemala, and I'm a missionary there with Latin Link. Um, and as I'm talking, I've got some leaflets and some postcards. If, you, if at the end you want to know a bit more or want to have a reminder of me, then you can take one of those. Um, but as I, um, as I was uh, talking to a few people last weekend at, at Lee Abbey, which is a great time, but I realised that um, maybe we first need a bit of a, a geography lesson. Um, <laughs> I'll mention no names. So the first slide I'm going to show is just for you to know where I am. <laughs> so hopefully you recognise that as the Americas. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's the first lesson. Um, and what we call um, South America is the big blob down here. Mexico and anywhere north is North America. <laughs> And the squiggly bit in the middle is Central America. Um, and just another term I, I might often say, talk about Latin America, um, and that refers to anywhere over there that was colonised by the Spanish or the Portuguese, which is more or less everywhere except for Guyana, Suriname and French Guyana, the, the three little ones at the top of Brazil, and Belize and some of the Caribbean, which were French and Dutch and English colonies. <laughs> So Latin America uh, is basically those countries that speak Spanish and Portuguese that were colonies of the Spanish and Portuguese. So then the next slide shows you a bit more of Central America. So that's the squiggly bit. <laughs> um, that's the technical term. <laughs> um, so I live in Guatemala, which borders Mexico and Belize and Honduras and El Salvador. And then the next one is of the country, Guatemala. So you see the little red star bit in the middle is Guatemala City, and just below it to the left is Antigua. I live about halfway between the two of those. Um, Antigua is the main kind of tourist place in, in Guatemala. And just to point out another thing, um, just side of that, it says Panahache, and there's a little um, blob, which is a lake, um, and that's one of my favorite places. I'm gonna show you some photos of that a bit later. Okay, um, yes, and so, um, so what do I do? My, I'm a, the short-term coordinator for Latin Link in Guatemala um, and occasionally for Mexico and El Salvador. Um, and what that means is that I organise our short-term programmes and we have these two programmes, STEP and STRIDE. STEP is for teams that go for a short term, a short time, maybe a month or two months. Uh, STRIDE is for a bit longer, six months up to two years. Um, and it's more tailor-made uh, placements for individuals or families. Um, and all of our, all of our um, programs work in any direction. So we receive missionaries to Guatemala and we send Guatemalan missionaries elsewhere as well. So practically that means my job, for those who come, I organise where they're going to stay, Spanish lessons, mentors, um, host families, all that kind of stuff, and generally look after people. And then for those Guatemalans who want to serve elsewhere, I do their application process. So interview them, talk to their sending church, do some training before they go. So that's 
um, my kind of official role. <laughs> and then over the last couple of years, I've been um, have a bit of a new emphasis on mission mobilisation. Um, and the word mobilisation, um, maybe we don't use it very often, um, and it comes from the kind of military terminology um, when they, somebody worked out that um, for what, to get one soldier on the front line, you actually needed something like nine other people in mobilising them to get them to that place. So that could be logistics and equipment and communications and, and finances and all sorts of other roles. But you needed something like nine other people in order for one soldier to be on the front line. And, um, and so different um, people in, in mission theory have kind of related this to how we send out missionaries. Um, so for a church to send a missionary, um, we need a certain amount of other people. That might be people who are praying, who are giving financially, supporting, communicating, all sorts of other, other things in order for that person to be uh, in their in their um, in their placement in, the, in serving in, the, in their work in their their serving country, and when those those support roles aren't in place or they aren't sustainable, then the mission fails. And unfortunately, one of the um, one of the most common stories in Latin America of, of Latin American missionaries being sent out is that they're sent out with lots of enthusiasm and lots of celebration because it's Latin America, um, and then they return earlier than they expected because of lack of funds or a breakdown in other, and another area of their support system. Um, and, they, and then the other, um, the other common story is somebody going out with, lo again, lots of celebration and then, then living in very poor conditions because they haven't got the finances to, to support themselves in a, in a way, in the best way. And for me, I think the church in Guatemala has not fully captured what their purpose or their identity is. And, um, and, I, and this is for the church as a whole, not just in Guatemala. Um, and I just want to quickly look at Genesis 12. Um, and there's a couple of verses in Genesis 12 which talks about actually who are we and what, what's the point, uh, what's our purpose as a church. Um, and... Uh, you think about missions, and lots of people think missions in the, in the Bible maybe started with Paul, um, but actually the theme of missions is right from the beginning, right from creation, where God is reaching out in relationship with, with um, humankind. Um, and one of the key, um, and this, one of the key issues is this, is put really succinctly in this verse in, in Genesis 12. And this is when God is calling Abraham to leave his own family and go to another place. And he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And in, in this, it encapsulates uh, the, the purpose of God's people. Um, and it talks about, it's this kind of two-part promise God says, I will bless you, you will bless others. And this is always, this is repeated in lots and lots of different ways throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. And it seems that this, is a per this was the purpose, this is the beginning of, of the people of Israel with the call of Abraham. And this was, the, with this was the purpose of Israel, being God's chosen people, wasn't for their own sake, but it was also to bless others and all the nations around 
And generally speaking, the Israelites got into trouble when they only focused on the first part. And I think sometimes the church today, too, we get into trouble when we only focus on the first part. We want the blessing for ourselves, full stop. (laughs) We don't get onto the second part. Um, And as I say, this is repeated through lots of things in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one of them is in, in Jonah, which I really like this story. And I guess most of us know the story that God calls Jonah or sends Jonah to Nineveh. Um, he says he wants to go there and, and preach. And, uh, and actually it's a message of destruction because they've been so sinful. And Jonah says, I don't want to go. He runs away, gets on a boat. There's a big storm, gets thrown off the boat, gets swallowed by the whale or the big fish. Um, in, the, in the fish's belly then thinks, oh, all right then. <laughs> all right. And, and so the fish then kind of vomits him up. And so he then goes to Nineveh, preaches, preaches this message from God, which is of destruction if they don't repent. And then they repent, and God holds back the destruction. He holds back the punishment. And then the really interesting part is that then Jonah gets really grumpy but this is a really interesting part and kind of says, uh, reveals his motivation, I think. Because then he says, says to God, I knew you would do this. I knew you would do this. I knew you would let them off, kind of thing. I knew you wanted to bless them, even though the message was of, of destruction unless they repented. And so it's almost like he's saying, because before we could have thought, well, he was, a, he was scared, he didn't want to leave his family, all the rest of it. But actually... That at the end, his motivation is revealed in that he didn't want to share the blessing that Israel had with others. And I think that's often how, where we are. As I said, this is through, through the Bible, but also through church history as well. We get into trouble when we think this is all for us and not sharing it. So we don't capture our own identity. Um, and in Guatemala... There are 40,000 churches, and that's something like 30% of the population who would call themselves Christians, and yet only 114 Guatemalans have been sent out as missionaries to other, other countries. So even if you think each one of them might be in, in contact with 10 churches who kind of send them, that's less than 1% of churches who are actively involved in, in sending missionaries. And I know there's lots of other ways in which you can be involved in, in missions, but it gives you an idea, I think it's, uh, it, it gives you an idea of, of um, the Guatemala church, that it, they're not looking out. And I think, generally speaking, the church there has kind of limited their understanding of mission to be simply about evangelism, as opposed to an integrated understanding of social care and justice and how we relate to each other Um, and even I think they've uh, um, limited their understanding and practice of evangelism to be just about preaching and articles so they don't so on the buses every every time you get on a bus there's somebody preaching you get lots of kind of one-off visits to places or hospitals or prisons but there's very little um, work on, on kind of long-term relationships or, or ongoing discipleship. So, um, so I think Guatemalan churches have, have not captured their identity and their purpose. And, um, and as I said, there's only 114 Guatemalan missionaries who are sent out. 
And in my opinion, that's not because of a lack of finances. It's not because of lack of resources. There are half a dozen what we call mega churches with huge auditoriums, all paid for uh, within the country. They're quite proud of that. Um, and so it's not a question of, of resources. It's, I think it's more a question of, uh, of priorities and, and, and vision. But it also means that in my role, as I said, sending out Guatemalan missionaries and, and doing part of their uh, training, is that I meet a lot, of, a lot of people who say to me, I, I feel that God has called me to, to missions in some way. Um, but very rarely do their, do their church understand what that means or have shown any interest or know anything about what they should do with that. So the church in general and, and a lot of church leaders don't really understand what missions is about or, or what, how they could be involved. So that's the background context for when a year or two ago I kind of started focusing a bit more on mission mobilisation from Guatemala. So not, and as I said, not necessarily just about recruitment, but about mobilising the church to be able to send and support missionaries in a sustainable way. Um, and I really want to talk today about Habakkuk. Um, Polly's already uh, read some of that. Um, but Habakkuk is, a, is a, uh, a book of the Old Testament which I've been kind of living in for the last couple of years as I've been trying to focus on this mission mobilisation. Although it perhaps doesn't, uh, um, doesn't immediately seem relevant. <laughs> um, but we're going to be looking at Habakkuk. And Habakkuk... So it's at the end of the Old Testament, just before you get to all the disease. Zephaniah and Zechariah. Zechariah. Um, and I'd encourage you to read it um, when you get home. It's only three chapters, but we're not going to read it all now. What we are going to do is read some key verses, which kind of are a sort of framework of this conversation that Habakkuk has with God. So in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verse 2, so this is Habakkuk talking. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? And then chapter 1, verse 5, is God's uh, initial answer. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And then uh, chapter 2, Habakkuk, uh, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And then in chapter 3, uh, this is Habakkuk speaking again, verse 2. 
Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. And then verse 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Um, so that, that kind of gives a framework of this conversation and over the last year or so I've really felt like God is sort of applying that framework, although Habakkuk's situation is very, very different in a specific moment in history, um, but God was kind of applying that framework to uh, what I was thinking about in terms of mission mobilisation. So I wonder whether perhaps there are others here as well who could relate to that. So at the beginning, um, in where are we? Um, at the beginning, so in, in chapter one, verse two, is uh, Habakkuk calling for help? How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or, I, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And you can almost hear the frustration and kind of desperation in Habakkuk's voice. Um, and it's not quite so much about, I mean, he does talk about the violence that is surrounding him. But his, his complaint is also that God appears not to care. It's this kind of apparent lack of interest. Um, I must call for you for help, but you don't listen. Um, violence, but you don't save. And so his frustration and desperation in his voice is about God. It seems like God doesn't care, is not working, is not doing anything. And then God replies in verse 3, Look at the nations and watch. And he's basically saying, pay attention, I'm going to do something. And the situation in which Habakkuk was living is that Israel was being oppressed and exploited by another a kind of enemy nation, the, the Assyrians. Um, so this is what this is the context in which Habakkuk says, this is all this violence against us and you're not doing anything. Um, and then God's answer says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And he then goes on to say, um, the very next verse, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. And he basically carries on saying that he's going to bring this another nation, Babylonian, to deal with what they're, the violence that they're in. And that's the rest of the, um, there's a chunk of, of God talking about that up to verse 11. And then from verse 12, Habakkuk cries out again, and this a bit more extended version, he cries out again expressing a bit more of this terrible violence that they're in but also saying that the Babylonians are just as bad so, so he's kind of like asking well what are you doing That's, that will be another situation of the same thing but, but having heard God's initial reply which was pay attention I'm going to do something he's able to kind of explain much more fully his complaint. And he finishes up 
by saying, uh, which is the verse I read, chapter 2, verse 1. So he, can, he, he repeats his, his complaint, but then says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. So although he's restating his complaint and saying, asking God, what on earth is going on? What, what are you going to do? He then finishes up with this commitment to listen and, to, and a commitment to patience, to, be, to wait and see what God will do. Um, and I, can, can we have a look at the, um, the slide with the photos on? I don't know if that's the one. Um, this is Lake Atitlan, which I pointed out on the map. And uh, the top one is from Panahachel, looking across. I think Susan and Morris have been there. Um, and the volcano you see in the distance is San Pedro. And then the bottom photo is taken from San Pedro. And um, this is one of my favourite places. It's a bit like Totnes. It's a bit, there's quite a lot of hippies around and um, second-hand shops and all things like that. Um, but it's also because I can swim. <laughs> Um, and this photo is taken from the roof of a, of a hostel that I normally stay in. And what I often do is then get in the lake here, and this bit in the middle is a kind of a rocky outcrop. And I get in the lake here and swim along until you get to the, to the end of the outcrop and you kind of look around the corner and to see all the volcanoes here over on your right. Um, and that's also where the sun rises. So when I'm uh, on a good day, if I can get up early enough, I'll, I'll go in and have a swim. And then you can basically see the sun rising over those distant um, mountains. And this is the image that I have in my mind when I read this. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. That idea of uh, watching and looking out as you see the sun rising or when you see... Um, there's a, I think I'm on the next photo... As you see these kind of layers of mountains there and what's coming over those mountains and in the morning there's all sorts of mists in between the layers of mountains kind of rising and this is the image I have when it says here I will stand at my watch and station myself at the ramparts and look to see this idea of being out early seeing the sunrise at dawn and being prepared for what's going to come and um, uh, Last year, uh, we had uh, our Latin Link team had a, a prayer day, and we had a sort of twenty-four-seven prayer day, and we had a room in my in my house, and we had all sorts of creative things. And then after that, um, there was a period of time where I really felt that God was asking me to go into use the prayer room um, first thing every morning, and just to listen. And it wasn't, um, and it's actually I didn't even take my Bible. It wasn't about quiet time or study. It was simply to listen. And it was the first thing that I did in the morning. Um, and then Habakkuk, uh, we go back here. So when he says this commitment, I will stand and watch, I will, I will listen and look to see what he will say. And then God answers in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And I think when we're in a situation of waiting, when we have made this commitment to, to look and see and to watch the horizon, what God is doing, 
God brings revelation. But we also need to take notice, we need to take note, literally to take note, to write it down. Um, and for me, that kind of, it was probably about a term I spent, um, the first thing in the morning I spent in, in this prayer room, it was a, I ended up with a, a kind of vision statement for what I wanted to see uh, happen for the Guatemalan church. Um, and I, I then shared that with the a prayer network that we have there. But it's interesting that once God has said this, it, he's basically saying, right, I've got your attention now. Now, li now listen. And then the whole of the rest of chapter 2, God exposes sin and violence, not only of these invading nations, but also within Israel, that Israel has, has um, uh, committed against others. And it's interesting that Habakkuk comes to God complaining of violence against Israel and God points, points out that they are also guilty of that. And he lists, goes through a long list of, of sins that kind of ex, explaining the extent <coughs> of their disobedience. I mean, it's quite, um, it's quite, it's quite disobedient. <laughs> um, so he talks about um, arrogance um, and greed um, and then says you pile up stolen goods you make yourself wealthy by extortion um, you've plundered many nations you've shed men's blood there's a whole list of stuff that's quite extreme and that was the reality of, of Israel and their relationships with other nations and both what had happened to them but also what, how they had uh, responded to others um, and for, for me, it's very easy for us to, and particularly in all these Old Testament stuff, it's very easy for us as Christians to think, yeah, I don't do any of that. <laughs> I haven't plundered anybody's uh, house or, or stolen goods or any of that. Um, it's very easy for us to think that's, that's not where we are. Um, but one, of the, one thing caught my eye, um, which is in verse 18. So this is chapter 2, verse 18. It says, of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols who cannot, that cannot speak. Um, and that phrase really, really uh, kept, caught my attention. For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. And we usually think of idols being kind of little statues or Buddhas, all those kind of things, and literally people bowing down to them. Um, and that was the case for Israel. But it made me think, this, this phrase, for he who makes it trusts in his own creation, uh, really made me think about actually what, what is there in my life that's actually of my own creation, but that I end up then tr trusting in. Um, and I think lots of the times... Um, it's simply about making plans. <laughs> um, for me, in thinking about when I first had this new focus of, on mission mobilisation, I kind of thought logically, okay, right, I'll talk with some other mission agencies, we can do some, do work, on, work together on some projects, we'll do some promotions in churches. And so I kind of started out on that route, but it, it basically came to nothing. <laughs> Um, and I think this is it, that we make plans and then, and then trust in them. And then we make plans 
uh, expecting God to fulfil them uh, and then to put our trust in them as if they were God's plans. But actually we've created them right from the beginning. Um, so I think, it, so even though uh, there's lots in, in this chapter, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can say I'm innocent of those, that, those things. But also there's things in that chapter that I thought God was uh, pinpointing as well that there were in my life. So then we get to chapter 3, um, and Habakkuk says at the beginning, Lord, I have heard of your fame, I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord, renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. And as you read this, and comparing it from his first complaint to God at the beginning of chapter 1, in chapter 3, he seems like he's calmed down a bit. <laughs> it seems like he's kind of lost the panic in his voice. And he spends most of this chapter, he starts off, I've heard of your fame. And he spends the rest of the chapter talking about that fame, recognising God's power, remembering mighty deeds, and basically praising God and exalting him. But actually, he's still asking God to act. He's still asking God to do something, the same as he was in chapter 1. Um, but somehow along the way, his, his attitude has changed. Um, so then in verse, um, verse 16, I'll just read a, a bit of that, and then 17 and 18. In the middle it says, Yet I will wait patiently. And he's saying, God has said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring up this, this other nation and uh, sort out all the oppression that you're feeling. Um, and so and Habakkuk says, I will wait patiently for that day. But then he goes on, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stores, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. So nothing has changed in the physical circumstances. They are still being oppressed by a, an, uh, a different uh, nation. Um, and he has not yet seen the answer to his prayer. But Habakkuk has changed this commitment. He's now come to a place where he said, I'll be, I'll be watching and waiting. God is going to do something. Um, but more than that, it's not just waiting. It's actually uh, praising God and choosing joy in the times of waiting or in the times of, of lack or not seeing any results. And it's a joy uh, not in the resolution of this issue. It's a joy in God. Amen. And um, I think joy is always a choice. And we're not talking about kind of a surface level happiness or being smiley, um, joy is something deeper, um, that is something about the soul. And I was really struck last weekend, we sang a song that I've, I've never sung before, um, but the chorus um, talked about, it is well with my soul. Um, and one chorus said, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And then in another chorus it said, there is grace enough to say, it is well with my soul. Yeah. So the wellness of our soul was not reliant on the circumstances. 
and the wellness of our soul, whatever my lot, whatever my situation, uh, you have taught me to say. So it's something that we can learn to do. We can learn to find joy in whatever situations. And there is grace enough to say it is well with my soul. In that sense that um, the, wellness of a, the, the wellness or the joy in my soul is not about my circumstances, but it's only reliant on the grace of God. And, um, and that's where I am at the moment, really. Um, there are no results in terms of the mission mobilisation that um, trying to start in Guatemala. There is, there are no results. There's no fruit. Um, there's a few encouraging conversations, but definitely no results. Um, and I could probably say, since beginning to focus on this, probably about a year and a half ago, I haven't really achieved anything. <laughs> And that's probably not what a missionary is supposed to say to the sending church. <laughs> um, but, but that's the truth. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm trying to have this attitude of Habakkuk and particularly focusing on two, the two passages. One is, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts and look to see what he will say to me. And the other one at the end, even when there is no results, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Um, and I did some, uh, over Christmas and New, New Year, I did some artwork around this because I really wanted this to be clear. So it's on the wall of my, my dining room. Um, that, so I can say, though the fig tree does not bud, though there's no grapes, though there's no churches wanting to send missionaries, though there's no, uh, there's no finances, whatever it is, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Um, and as I've been thinking a lot more about Habakkuk and the, this kind of conversation that's going on, an image that is in my mind is that of a small child, a toddler maybe, or a child, who's kind of raging against some injustice, kind of screaming and shouting at their parent, and, and this kind of shouting, you don't even care, this has happened, that kind of uh, just desperation. And then the, the father is, you know, when we see, I'm going to say, what parents on, on good days, <laughs> where the parent can then embrace the child, even though he's still kind of fighting. Um, but then says, listen, I'm going to do something. But it might not be what you expect. Um, but this, just the physicalness of that embrace opens a space for a real conversation. When the child is able to really explain, and perhaps only at that moment really understand themselves, what they're, how they're hurting or what injustice they're angry at. But God is also able to highlight maybe there's been injustices or hurts that the child has inflicted on others as well. Um, but it's, all of this happens within the context of, a, of an embrace where God, the Father, calms the child in order to give space for that conversation to happen. But it ends up with this, uh, the promise of action from God, but also the promise of, of joy from the child as well. I'll trust you. There's a commitment to wait. 
And actually, I discovered that Habakkuk, the name Habakkuk, means the embraced one. And I think this, in so much of what we do, and sometimes when we're in situations or when we see the world news, there is so much injustice, and we, we kind of want to rage against that. And when, and certainly when those of us who are kind of involved in our life or in our work some way in, in fighting injustice or trying to in face in difficult situations, sometimes it can feel a very long wait before God does anything. Um, and it might feel like God isn't listening, that he doesn't quite care. Um, but actually, God is wanting to, to say, look, I'm going to do something. He's wanting to hold you, embrace you, and in that way, open a space to, for conversation. For Habakkuk, at the end of the three chapters, his situation had not changed at all, um, but his focus had. Yeah. He was calm, and he could probably say, it is well with my soul. Um, so what might this mean for me and you? Um, as I've kind of talked about this framework of this conversation, maybe you can identify with a particular stage of that conversation between God and Habakkuk. Perhaps there's a, some uh, injustice or trauma that you're living in the middle of and you're trying to see, you're trying to raging against God for an answer. Or perhaps you're waiting for God's response. But I want us to, to think, just to let God calm us, to let him embrace us in the midst of all our frustrations, and so that you can have that real conversation, get to a place of identifying the deep hurts, but also allowing God to, to highlight stuff in our lives as well that isn't right, so that we can get to the stage of being able to say, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And whatever the, um, the phrases beforehand, these are all very agricultural in, the, in Habakkuk 3, verse 17. When these things don't grow, when there's no fruit, yet I will praise the Lord, I will rejoice. Um, and those phrases might be different for, for us. Though there, are, though there are no resources for mission though my job isn't what I really want it to be, though my family is in a, bit, in a bit of a mess, even then, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. So I want us to be able to have that time to, to just to let God calm us so that we can get to a stage where we can say, it is well with my soul, in spite of the circumstances. But I'm also aware that maybe for some of us, we might be able to say, well, it's quite well with my circumstances, but my soul I'm not so sure about. And equally, God wants to embrace and touch us at the deepest parts. He wants to be able to open that conversation about what is going on with you at, at the soul level, at the depths of your heart. He wants to calm you. So I'm going to finish here. I think we're going to sing, maybe. Um, but I just want to encourage you to spend that time, spend time thinking about uh, 
expressing your uh, frustration with God maybe, but letting him embrace you, letting him calm you so that you could um, affirm as well that it is well with my soul.